Hi, welcome to New Zealand Vegan Podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth Collins. This is episode 33. And today I would like to welcome back a very special guest to the show, Dr. Roger Yates. Dr. Yates is a lecturer in social theory at the University of Wales, Bangor. Dr. Yates became fully involved in the British grassroots animal movement in the 1970s when he joined the Hunt Saboteurs and went on to take part in the radicalization of the BUAV in the early 80s. In 1982, he helped to open and run the first ever animal rights shop in Liverpool, which developed into a campaigning resource centre. Dr. Yates co-founded the Fur Action Group with others from the BUAV and created the largest data bank on fur-bearing animals in the country. His MA thesis was an examination of the British animal protection movement and his 2005 PhD dissertation is called The Social Construction of Human Beings and Other Animals in Human-Non-Human Relations. And I have a link to that thesis on my site so you can go and read it and of course Dr. Yates maintains blogs in the abolitionist blogosphere which I very much recommend reading as well and I have links to those and welcome to the show Dr. Yates. Hey Elizabeth thank you very much it's great to be back how are you what, what have you got in store for us today? I'm very well thank you um, I, I brought you on today because I wanted some help in dealing with an issue that I have been meaning to discuss for the longest time and it's the pest, quote-unquote, pest issue, um, our um, treatment of um, ecological disasters, um, of propagation of species perhaps in a, a not ideal situation. And specifically, there was an article that you had sent me, um, that you had sent out to us to have a look at, that uh, of a situation in Australia where they were discussing um, how to deal with a problem that they had caused um, of camels. And um, we wanted to, I just really want to analyze this whole um, point of view. It's something I oh, really yes. want this, this, this is the independent you're talking about, isn't it? Uh, it's, a, it's an article by Roger Maynard, and it was from uh, July the 27th. So it was a very recent thing about uh, uh, controlling pest camels. Yeah, that's it. Yes, and um, I'm going to put a link to it, so please please do read it, and you'll have a little insight on what we're talking about. And, you know, we're going to get in, I really want to get into the broader, it's something I've really been wanting to tackle. I live in New Zealand where there's horrific um, ecological destruction happening and annihilation of many animals, uh, opossums and things, and, you know, we're not going to be able to tackle every individual case, but I think that um, I'd just love to uh, have a response to that because I know there are a lot of people who um, want to know what our position is on this. Yes, well, I'll be glad to help if I'm able. Okay, wonderful. I've been wanting to do this for a long time, is to talk about the pest issue. Um, because a lot of people, like I was talking to a new abolitionist, she had a conversation with somebody and they said the deer, you know, the deer population is destroying the da-da-da-da-da. And, um, and I said, well, you know, they're killing the natural predator of the deer, uh, which is the wolves. Yeah, because the thing is, you know, what we're talking about today, Elizabeth, is with the camel thing as well, is that we're talking about these kind of moral dilemmas. You mentioned deer. I mean, I mean de deer um, do provide a problem for uh, animal rights theory in the sense that there'll never not be conflict. No, unfortunately which, not. And New Zealand is, is a horrific example of that. And, and also, they'll probably, even in an animal rights world, right, there will probably not be a situation where we as humans don't kill non-humans sometimes. Now, the, th the thing is, um, what would be interesting about 
this camel situation is say, okay, let's now imagine that Australia is a vegan uh, country. What would we do? What would we do? Because obviously the problem is the fact that they're not non-indigenous beings. Right? So they've been brought in just like the rabbits have been brought in. Okay. Now, so that means that what do we do? Do we, we capture them and then sterilize them? Or do we um, just give them some space? We kind of uh, fence them in. Do, you know, do, do we um, do we knock them out with these drugs, as you say, have been tested, and te repatriate them? What what would we do, even as a vegan community? It, it's not at all clear cut, is it? It's not at all clear cut, and that's what I wanted to um, talk um, about with you today. Is with regard to the camel. Um, exactly the camel story that's happening in Australia, which is just one example of many, many, many stories. I mean, when I walk down to my little local, um, you know, New Zealand is a land of flightless birds and birds and lizards. Um, apparently in my interpreting class, they said rats have been here for a thousand years, but I don't see how that's possible because there would be no flightless birds, they live in the ground. But, you know, what they're doing is annihilation of these other species. They're annihilating possums and they're making all kinds of things out of possum fur. Possum fur is an ecological statement in New Zealand because they're a pest. So they're destroying the native forest, but we brought them here. So it's not the possum's fault obviously and as a vegan I'm they are paying the price of what we've done as always as always exactly so in New Zealand possum is in everything and I mean you you know don't buy anything without making sure because it's probably real fur <laughs> because they're annihilating them by the million and obviously rabbits and obviously cats I mean forget about it I mean to preserve the bird species the reason they're doing this is because the New Zealand native species of birds are being wiped out and becoming extinct. And this is, again, because of us. Um, I disagree with the annihilation, and I would love to know what a vegan um, New Zealand, how a vegan New Zealand would deal with this. We have to be realistic. You're absolutely right. Um, the facts are the facts, and we've created this mess, and how would we deal with that? So... Um, I think that at the very least, it's nice to think about how we deal. It's nice to deal with, I mean, I, what I want to be able to do out of this conversation with you today is find out how to, when people pose these kinds of questions to us, you had very great answers when you talked about, for example, the, the combine harvesters you know, mulching up the rodents to make our soy. And you said we need vegans driving those machines. We need more vegans. I totally agree and with regard to the pest issue as well. I think that it is abominable. I, I mean, I can't sit here and say I have the solution, but I will say that I think it is abominable that the solution is to annihilate them and think that that's okay. And, um, the, and um, with the camels, to farm them for meat um, and try to make money off them is um, pretty typical. So what I want to do is be able to, to, to come across as, as, because I'm trying so hard not to be tripped up, because people are looking to trip us up at every opportunity, and one little trip up, then unfortunately, correct me if I'm wrong, human nature being the way it is, one little trip up, they're like, oh, you guys are totally inconsistent and that's it. I'm not even interested in what you have to say. So the reason I wanted to ask you is because you think about these things and you have a really great insight. So let's talk about the camels in Australia. And if people come to us and say, well, you know, 
what do you think that's wrong and we say yes we do think it's wrong and then they say well or in New Zealand well what about all the native species that are being wiped out and stuff like that how do we deal with those questions I mean you know I want to be able to deal with them without without them thinking I'm crazy because I definitely think that annihilation is wrong I just morally think it's wrong to annihilate these creatures for it because of our own um our own doing yeah I think as a macro point we we have to acknowledge probably that most of the conflict situations are created by something that the human populations have done at some point so if, if we look at the problem in Britain of so-called rogue foxes or these issues in Australia of the uh, camels and your flightless birds in uh, um, New Zealand, you'll probably find that the issue is down to the kind of birds uh, and animals that we've imported. So, so really, we're back to needing more vegans because at least then we've got much greater chance of getting a, a morally sound or better solution because it won't be to do with, well, how can we commodify them then? It's to do with how can we get ourselves out of this problem in the, in the most you know morally right way possible, and so we're back to the need for more vegans, aren't we? Yes, I agree. And there's another one then red squirrel in England. Have you heard about that? Yeah, and there's also the uh, the issue of the the ruddy duck. Uh, the ruddy duck. They want to kill them because they're going to Spain. So the the, the ones that are situated in Wales, uh, Scotland, I think, uh, and also in England, they fly to um, Spain and they mate with the white-headed duck and so the problem there is the fact that the white-headed duck is becoming extinct because they're, they're now creating a hybrid. It's one of those situations where two uh, distinct species can actually mate together to create a hybrid. It's, it's fairly rare as I understand it in nature but on this occasion it, it And how is this a problem in the long, like with regard to our interference? It's a problem for conservationists who want to conserve the white-headed duck for whatever reason they want to conserve them, rather than just seeing it as a, as a process which doesn't actually harm any individual because uh, a high-bred individual is just as valuable as, uh, as a purebred or whatever. You know, in, in, interesting, the language is even prejudicial, isn't it? You know, a hybrid is seen as, seen as diminished, whereas a purebred is seen as... Uh, the, you know, the one to conserve. So it's a very biased view. And that, that is also the problem with Australia with the camels and everything else. Because we're now relying on speciesists to come up with some ideas, it's an incredibly biased view. And one of the first things they do is, well, how can we commodify this? How can we make profit from this? This, this, this terrible disaster, which, you know, you could say, okay, well, you can see the logic of the notion that um, a camel would maybe do quite a lot of damage to an arid uh, place because of the fact they can they can live and thrive in a, an arid situation. You can see the logic of that, but it, but it's about making in the first place, and you should see it as a, as a terrible disaster uh, and a terrible shame. And yet, the first thing that that they're thinking of is how can we make profit out. Yes, and they're they're neglecting to add that the camels themselves are victims here. The camels are victims of this disaster. They're not the perpetrators of the disaster the way that it's 
that has been yeah, described. Yeah, well, species are bound to interpret it that way. They're never going to interpret the fact that the, the, the camels are, the, are victims because they see the, the camel as an aggressor and they don't trace it back to the fact that we, as a species, brought them in. So they don't take it that far. So my question that I'm trying to, what I really wanted your help with, um, in a way, is, is with regard to the conversation we just had a l not long ago about how we need more vegans because we will be more likely to come up with a solution that comes from our ethics or our morals re with our recognition of, of, of animals as persons and, and as, as, as um, sentient beings with rights. But how do I translate that to somebody who's already thinking I have a superiority complex and who's trying to trip me up and say, well, in New Zealand, you know, what are you going to do about all the cats and the rats and the stuff? And if I come to them and say, we need more vegans, I mean, do you think, I, I think that that's probably quite valid. Yeah, I think if I say that in a non-aggressive uh, or judgmental way, they should be able to see the logic of it. Do you? Uh, also, we've spoken a lot about um, our position is based on honesty. And that part of the, the issue of being honest in this regard is to say that there is no pure land and there is no perfect solution and that we don't know what the solution is um, at the moment. Uh, to use kind of Tom Reagan's phrase, we need people of goodwill. And again, you could say, okay, well, that's elitist because you're, you're implying that people of goodwill are going to be vegans. But in a sense, I, I am saying that. Um, because at least then that uh, a vegan community will not look purely from an economic point of view. It won't look purely from a point of view of how can we commodify. It will be looking uh, from a point of how can we do the least amount of harm here. Uh, is it possible to do no harm? Yes, very good. So, I mean, I think acknowledgement of the fact that, you know, we that we're not even... We can only sort of imagine a solution um, amongst three or four of us because nobody else is even considering what we're considering with regard to these creatures. I mean, they're instantly looking for um, a way to commodify them or just basically annihilate them. Um, whereas, like we were mentioning, we were talking before about the people who are in um, what they call developing nations who are starving to death and um, the fact that we would not... You know, that may be, that is most definitely, I would say, a, another victim of capitalism and commodification of the resources of the planet. Um, There's a lot tied in with animal agriculture and our use of resources. But our solution, because we recognize, you know, we, we haven't come close to, um, to uh, I mean, you know, the, the fact that doesn't excuse the fact that they are dying and not enough is being done about it. But however, annihilating or commodifying them is certainly not on the open agenda and never would be. And, um, and there's there's a big um, difference there. Um, I think this. I think that what I was talking to with this this one person who was writing to me about these things, and it. I just kept saying to she would say, well, my friend says such and such, and I'd say, that's because your friend is is speciesist. That's what we're fighting against. And number one, that is really what we're fighting against is speciesism. That's right. And I'm assuming that when you um, when you do this podcast or or produce the blog entry in relation to this, you, you'll have a link to the, the independent, because there's a couple of um, sections from that which are really interesting. It says, first of all, the camel, which was introduced to Australia in 1840 to help transport heavy goods, so in other words, they were, they were brought in as vehicles, right? 
has now become one of its greatest pests. Now, there's an implication there that the camel has done something wrong, you know, that, that they have violated the purpose for which they were, they were, they were brought into the country. They were, they were brought in as a heavy goods vehicle, and now they've become a pest. And so the entire tone of that little sentence sums up the species' approach, as, as you're saying. Further down, it says, but killing camels is not quick or cheap. So that then opens up a discussion about, well, um, if, if it's a question of money, then maybe the killing of uh, camels is not, is not the issue. Maybe there might be some other um, less uh, fatal way of, of, of doing it, less lethal way of doing it. Um, but also, as a larger point, money shouldn't be the issue in the first place. Society must be prepared to pay whatever cost is necessary to sort this problem out in, in the least harmful way because we are the ones who created it. There's no suggestion within this article that that is even part of the mindset, and that's the problem. I totally agree, and that's why it's taken me so long. I've mentioned it a few times. I have been wanting and wanting to articulate my thoughts, because I think about this all the time, this pest issue, the pest issue. Um, the amount of non-humans that are annihilated as pests even in Auckland, the pigeons in, in Victoria Park Market. And I remember I, I, wrote, I wrote a letter. I, somebody w asked me to write a letter, and I wrote a letter. And in the letter, you know, I was think I, I, you know, <laughs> I always have hope. So I wrote to the person and said, you know, I'm sure you're not thinking about that individual pigeon's experience when they eat the poison. I said, just try for a second. And I said, you know, and the less questions you ask, and I, I sort of made a reference to Herman, Herman Goering kind of thing, like, you know, you're being a Herman Goering about this, you know, this annihilation of the pigeons. Because, but I don't, I don't know if the message got through. But I've been wanting to, to, to articulate this for a while because even where I live, I live close to some native bush, and I can walk down through the native bush to a little. It's it's part of Manukau Harbour, so I can walk down to the water's edge, and it's a lovely walk. And there's birds singing, and it's real New Zealand native bush. Of course, there's gorse and all these other things that they brought over from England. I mean, you know, the plant life is also being destroyed by other plant life that are invaders, too. The native bush is being strangled by imported plants as well. Um, so we've just, what, we're, what we've done to ecology is just mind-boggling. And um, I, there's no simple solution, none. But every time I walk down to the beach, I, I pass these traps, and they're steel traps. And I would say every 10 meters, you know, that's their solution. And then when you read about New Zealand and these amazing breakthroughs of these islands of birds that they've done, I, I know that the birds are, 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 are being helped. But the, if you could only knew the annihilation of cats and weasels and, and dogs, probably, who accidentally eat the poison, um, rodents, all kinds of rodents um, that are being just annihilated, not to mention the possums, not to mention the deer. Um, it, um, it's something I've been really wanting to discuss for a long time because in New Zealand that's one of the biggest, the biggest animal people, the biggest conservationists, quote-unquote animal lovers, are so into this annihilation. I mean, to them it's like a no-brainer. Yeah, well, it's a shame really in the sense that um, conservation and animal rights, uh, they don't sit well together as a, gen as a general matter, which is... Um, an interesting one, but going back to the issue of 
pests and also mindsets, which is what we're really talking about. Uh, Gary Francione, uh, you know, you, you, you're aware that um, I, as part of my Animal Rights July, uh, Gary gave a talk via Skype. Um, what he said there was that if we define intelligence as the ability to live on the planet without destroying it, then that would mean that we're not very intelligent. Now, in, in um, recently at UCD, we had a lecture by James Lovelock. So again, if we were to take the position of, say, the Gaia, and then think about pests, what would the Gaia think was the greatest pest on planet Earth? You know what I mean? So again, a different mindset is what's needed here to look at these issues. If, if, we, if, if we continue to confront the kind of issues that we're dealing with here in Australia, the camels, with the same old species mindset, then we're going to get the same old species solutions, which is get the guns out and then try and sell the meat. Yeah, 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 okay. Uh, that, that's what I've been wanting to say for the longest time because, you know, I, the problem with people who um, haven't um, sort of tried to think about these things um, uh, the way that we, we want more people to think of the way that you and I think now about, you know, while you have for many years, is that they will look at us and say, you don't care about the birds, you don't care about the native birds, or you don't care about... And they get all caught up in that, and they miss, they miss the point that we do care about... It's almost like the welfare is saying we don't care about the animals who are suffering now. So if we, if we don't annihilate the possums, then our native species of birds are going to be annihilated. So, you know, you don't care about the native birds. You care about the possums. I'm like, I want to say I care about all of them, you know? They're all yeah, innocent. Again, we talked at length about um, the dominant paradigm in terms of how we're encouraged and even brought up to look at uh, human-non-human relations. And the dominant paradigm is welfareist. And one of the first things that welfareism teaches you, in a sense, is to create hierarchies. And so, again, that fits in with that notion of, well, which are the more important? Whereas, from our point of view, they're all important as individuals. And that, and that really is the difference. In fact, toward the end of this article, they have a, a subheading which is counting the cost of camels. Again, this is part of the capitalist mindset. We tend to quantify and we think of things in economic terms. You know, how much is this going to cost? You know, is it worth it? Where's the profit? You know, and these are the criteria on which this issue is being judged and this issue is talked about within this article. The article itself is almost a poem to speciesism. Yes. So the reality is that we are so entrenched in in this we're not even going to get near having a say about the camels until we get more it all comes down to spreading vegan awareness that's why I don't understand why people are so resistant to that <laughs> it's the most logical thing that we can do um yeah, you're, you're right there because again I've argued, um, in terms of vegan education, one of the main advantages from my point of view is the fact that you're doing everything all at once. So, you know, in the sense that you don't have to have a circus demo and then think, okay, well, 
we've now convinced people that circuses are cruel or they're, they're not good or even that they represent a rights violation. But then we might then have to go through an entire process to have a conversation with the same people now about meat or about horse racing. Whereas vegan education does all of that because vegans don't go to horse racing. They don't go to circuses. They don't eat meat. They don't consume dairy. So it's everything all at once. And again, um, it would feed into a discussion or even a thought about this kind of issue as well. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, people say it's too simple. I think that it, it's wonderfully simple. It does. That's what I love about it. It deals with all of the issues. Like I'm, it's consistency. If you're going to come to me and talk about the the possum problem, I'm going to have the same attitude towards it as I do towards horse racing or as I do towards, you know, farming. And um, like Gary says, very often, and people just don't listen when he says this, but he says, look, you know. When you're talking, when he's talking about vegan education, it does sound very simple at first, but we admit, we acknowledge that in each you know, um, problem that we've created on this earth, there are huge complicated issues. We're not ignoring that. I mean, we acknowledge that, for example, the pest issue and the ecological issues that are concerned with these camels, you know, they're extremely a lot more complicated than if um, people stopped um, buying. Um, I mean, everything's pretty complicated. Uh, even, uh, you know, what are we going to do with all the domestic, if everybody decides to go vegan um, with the domestic animals and we say, okay, we don't want to eat them anymore. And then we have, you know, say we have a few hundred billion of them to have and to to take care of and things like that. So I think that people are missing the point. They don't. They think we don't think beyond, and we're always thinking beyond. The thing is that we're thinking beyond as vegans who want to not cause annihilation. So we are thinking beyond. You know, we don't just uh, people think that um, we are not uh, thinking it through. And I really want them to. Re we're thinking it through. Yeah, I think I think that's a, a strong point. Also, um, in terms of the balanced approach that you just articulated there. I would strongly support that, and that goes also to this notion of being honest. And part of the notion of being honest in this case of these pest camels will be to recognize that we probably won't actually ever come up with something which we're, we're going to be completely happy with. This might be such a, an in, a problem that we're not really going to be able to come up with a solution, even if, say, for example, we had a complete vegan community here because I think there is a major problem about how do we kind of devolve this issue, you know, this issue that has been created for many, many generations. Because of our greed and our speciesism, it's been created by us, but how do we get ourselves out of it now? And even for a vegan society, I think that's going to be quite a difficult uh, problem and probably create some disagreements as well. So, again, there's no pure land. There are no solutions to every single thing but at least then you've got a non-speciesist approach and that's the best we can do and that's a good thing Yes, I'm very glad that you articulated that and I really hope that anybody listening to this doesn't hear little voices in their head saying that we're compromising or we're being welfareist. Very, very clearly, what we're saying is we have to abolish speciesism. The speciesist approach is the problem. We acknowledge that there are practical matters that are going to need to be dealt with. There will be conflicts. You know, there will be disagreements amongst people. Um, and there will, um, as human beings, I mean, the, the camel issue in Australia is one of 
thousands of issues. There's a toad issue in Australia. Um, I'm sure in England there's rabbits and there's all this. So, you know, we acknowledge that. But I think that um, the, I don't want people to suddenly think we're being, say, oh, but you're being welfare. No, 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 no. What, what, we, what we're being is honest about the fact that some of these things are incredibly difficult and complex. Uh, I remember a debate in the 1980s about um, cats and dogs in the RSPCA and the realization, in a sense, that what species society do is rely on the traditional welfare groups like the RSPCA to mop up their mess. So they, they breed pets as much as they want, they kind of swap them, sell them, give them away as presents, buy them as Christmas presents and all the rest of this stuff. Um, they often will uh, abandon puppies and, and dogs on the motorway on the way to to, um, to, to holidays and, and buy another one when they come back and, and this kind of thing. So you've got all this kind of speciesist attitude and behavior. And the animal welfare groups are the ones who are left trying to pick up the pieces. And it was once argued in the 80s that what the RSPCA should do is not rescue and leave the cats and the dogs on the street. And so when, when there was hundreds of cats and dogs being run over uh, on the roads, then the government might do something about it. Of course, it's a solution that, that is very unappealing for lots of different reasons. But you can kind of see the logic of, of that. Whilst we mop up, species society is protected from the harm that they themselves do. Again, it's a terrible moral dilemma because you know, we are forced into this situation. I was forced. When I was in Liverpool, I was forced into being an animal sanctuary. People used to throw puppies and kittens over our wall into our compound. We often used to wake up and find um, kittens in boxes, or more often we would find a box in which there were some kittens and they'd escaped during the night. You know, they, they'd found, found um, a hole and we'd find their, their fur being torn a little bit, you know. So... Um, we were, we were effectively forced into the situation of, of mopping up this problem, not of our creating. And this is, in a larger extent, what society would have to do if it became vegan. It would then have to say, say okay, uh, how do we get ourselves out of the problem created by the pre-vegan societies uh, that preceded us? And it's a major problem because I, I don't think there's going to be a, a neat solution to everything. No, there isn't going to be a neat solution to everything. Um, I only wish I could be around to help um, solve these problems, but it's going to be long after I'm dead, I'm pretty sure. But um, I do, um, you know, um, non-speciesism is the way to go, and the abolishment of the property status is the way to go. And um, with regards to what comes after, we have to acknowledge everything that you said but um, I want people to be very, very clear listening to this that um, we're, we're, this is to do with the abolishment of the property status. This is to do with the abolishment of speciesism. And it is acknowledgement, as Roger just said, of the fact that we are not living in our little dreamlands and things like that that people accuse us of, of living in. Um, Roger, um, I would love to... Um, First of all, do you have any other um, thoughts on this uh, with regard to maybe this camel story or any? No, I think we've, uh, we've covered most of the things. Interesting, again, I'm, I'm reading, reading the article as we, as we speak, and it talks about the camels damaging Aboriginal communities in their search for water. Well, we, we can't really complain about uh, 
uh, non-humans searching for water because that's what we do. They fracture pipes. Well, you know, I'm sure that human beings have fractured pipes. They knock over air conditioning units off, uh, or they knock air conditioning units off walls. I'm sure we've done that uh, in the past as well. And so again, a, um, this is, this is a, a deeply speciesist uh, view of the problem. And that really is the core issue. If, if we approach it, uh, this issue, from the way that it's approached in this um, article, then we're obviously going to only come up with speciesist solutions, and that's obviously not acceptable for us. No, it's absolutely unacceptable. And here in New Zealand, um, I think it is unacceptable um, to think that annihilation is the way. Um, I would love to be given the chance to, as a practical matter, try to come up with a solution. Um, and um, I would love, to, Roger, I want to invite you back on the show because you mentioned something that I really want to talk about. And I know my friend Jordan Wyatt is very interested in this topic because he struggles with it a lot. What we talk about when we talk about the, the ending of the domestication and then people say, well, how are you going to do that the animals are going to continue to breed and we talk about preventing them from breeding, preventing them from um, propagating their species and you mentioned that um, as a movement we don't really address the way that that is done either so I would love um, if you could come back on and we could do a show to continue on from the pet issue um, that I did where you've had some more insight and we could maybe discuss some of these issues that people have um, with um, the methods used on these animals uh, to prevent them from breeding, which is a very controversial issue, and um, how, as abolitionists, you know, we really should be also articulating that. So, um, would you come back on and talk about that with me? It will be my pleasure. Of course, I will. Fantastic. So, um, I think that. Um, I feel like I mean I feel like we could talk for days about we could pick one particular ecosystem in one particular part of the world we could spend days talking about how to resolve the conflicts caused um, you know so, some of the, the some of this the white annihilation of these so-called pests is simply so that they don't walk on the plates or they don't poop they don't poop on people you know so some of it is exceedingly trivial and it really illustrates the speciesism but we could pick a thousand places in the world where we have caused ecological disaster with our introduction of species and spend days talking about it um, but um, I hope that in this short you know talk that we've had we've we've pretty much articulated what we need to articulate um, I feel a lot better having talked with you about it because it's something that I've been really wanting to articulate and people do come and say what about the deer and and it is such a complicated issue so thank you for yeah the, pro the problem there the problem there and also in the article of course is that people say what about the deer and here they're saying what about the camels but they're not saying what about the camel problem which we created I mean, that would be a major advance in terms of thinking about this if it was uh, there the, as i said there was there is this acknowledgement that they were introduced to australia in 1840 to help Right. There's no, there's no real continuation there as a recognition that we brought them in deliberately. It was a, an act of recklessness. It was something that went wrong. It's something that maybe if we'd have thought about it beforehand, it, we would, we would think twice. There's none of that. Th that's the real problem. The, the core, the core issue is there's no acknowledgement that we are the, the creators of these issues. I agree. I agree with that totally. And um, I think that um, part of what we're trying to tell people is we have to take responsibility for our actions, especially because the responsibility and the consequences is causing death. 
and annihilation of habitats of individuals of billions and billions of living things i mean that's a big responsibility i shoulder that responsibility as a human being i don't absolve myself from any of it and i want to help solve it and i'm not i don't think we're getting on a moral high horse or trying to be superior i wish people would realize you know we really want to help sort out this mess that we have made and i feel very responsible on a personal level to what is happening to um all the other uh creatures and i want to do my part to help them and if that means you know um occasionally having misunderstandings with people um you know who, who are going to accuse me of certain things um then that's just part of it but i feel like i wish that more people would take responsibility and that includes some animal so-called advocates also who want to blame everybody else and um and um don't want to acknowledge that um you know none of us are absolved we all are responsible for this and i believe that we're responsible you know on an individual level maybe i'm not you know i'm not the person who took the camels to australia but i think that it's pointless to try to point finger and i think that you're right about the acknowledgement of the original deed but you know the re- the point that we're trying to make is the acknowledgement of the original deed means that we have an obligation a moral obligation to help the victims of this deed and rather than commodify them and exploit them because we're species this so i think i i really hope that you know this is clear and um I, if anybody's listening and they have you know please write in i'm sure Roger would come back if there were some issues raised um that we haven't addressed or something i would love to really explore these things i think these are the kinds of things that needs to be talked about people think that we're not thinking about these things and um, they think we're just closing our eyes and imagining we're all going to stand around in a happy circle around our tofu cakes and no 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 we we acknowledge oh you mean you mean we're not that <laughs> <laughs> um, there is one um one thing i could say in terms of contextualizing what what you said there is that we talk about responsibility and yet a big part of capitalist ethos is that we can consume and we can do what we want without responsibility you know you can drink as much alcohol as you want you don't have to be personally responsible for that you can eat as much meat as you want you don't have to be responsible you just take this pill instead and so there is actually a, a large counterforce to this notion that we should think critically and reflectively about what we consume what we do uh, how we live on the world in the sense that we are encouraged to be able to do whatever we want to and not have any consequences uh, for it that, that that is the is the way that we're often um that's the way that we're often encouraged to think about the world but also the kind of promise um you know science often promises that you know we'll find a pill for this and we'll find a solution for that you know if we run out of oil we'll do this even to the extent of if we completely screw up this planet we will found a way of yep. going to another planet. another planet exactly so as a sociologist who's you know studied who has made it his business to study sociology um that's um a huge part of our activism is countering this capitalist um because at the moment what we're dealing with is um you know the reality is is that um I'm talking to people who are in a very wealthy country. I'm going to I'm going to go out. I want to do more one-on-one. I'm very much Well, as a sociologist, what I would say is that what you're going to encounter is a lot of institutionalized views which has also been internalized as as we put it. And so 
Um, when we're being socialized as children, we get told lots of things by our parents and then by our peer groups and the media, etc. Usually by our parents initially, which is called primary socialization. Now this is strong in the sense that it lays down our foundational knowledge, our core set, sets of beliefs. Now we can also resist these, and we often do, but there are large parts of it that we don't. We just take it on board. And especially in the sense that when views are institutionalized, it means that they're reflected in all the institutions of uh, society, in the sense that I used to explain this to um, a, kind of ba a basic class by saying, if, if you were a child and you said to your parents, I want a bicycle, how should I uh, get one? Should I save up my pocket money or should I steal one? Your parents are supposed to say, oh no, you don't steal one, that's wrong, you save up your pocket money and, and buy one. And then you think, hmm, perhaps I can take a second opinion on this, and then you go to your teacher and say, um, I want a bicycle, how should I get one? Should I steal one or should I steal my pocket money? Then the teacher should echo what the parent has said. Uh, and then if you then go to the police officer, it's their job then to say, oh, actually, your parents and your teacher are right, you cannot steal to get a bike, you've got to uh, save up to, to get one. And so in this way, some views are institutionalized in, in the sense that they're reflected throughout all the institutions of society, and they therefore become foundational views. And of course, many of our views about human and human relations are just that, that. we're superior, we're more important, uh, they're, they're less valuable, if it becomes a choice between our interests and theirs, then they are uh, the ones who give way, we can use them as long as we treat them well, all, all the rest of the things, because welfareism is also incorporated in, into our institutionalized views. So this is what we're fighting uh, against. When people internalize those views, then shifting it becomes very strong. In other words, if you were to say as a parent to your child X, Y, and Z, uh, and then they became to believe it themselves, then they internalize what they've been socialized to believe. Once you internalize something, it becomes part of you, becomes part of your psychology, becomes part of your very being, becomes part of your identity. And that means then you're very resistant to have that questioned. And in a sense, you know, what, uh, what we do as animal rights advocates, we say to people that up until this time that we're telling you this, you've been making consistent serial moral errors in your diet, in your being, in your attitude to life, etc., etc. So we're, we're actually um, challenging some very foundational, fundamental aspects of people's very being. And so that's why it's very hard for us to do it. And that's why change is slow. And for some people, they're incredibly resistant. And I think I mentioned the last time I was on your show, Elizabeth, we're very good as human beings at denial. And so we've got all the tools to resist what we want to uh, you know, people have got all, all the tools available to them to resist what we want to give them, which is new knowledge, new information, new knowledge which is going to shake these foundations, and they're not going to want to necessarily receive it, and that's part of the problem that we've got as advocates. All right. Well, we have to deal with that problem, and the more we can learn from from someone like you to give us some insight, the, the better it is for all of us. So I hope a lot of people are listening. And you're going to do a podcast, right? Uh, I'm looking. I'm looking into it, but I'm. Uh, 
I, I'm determined to beat Gary Francione to it, but um, it's, it's slow going, and uh, he's got all the tech people with, with him on his side of the pond as well, so I've got a lot of work to do, I, I guess. Well, I'll try to help you. I just realized that I did this whole interview on my bad microphone, so I've got a lot of work ahead of me to get this to sound halfway decent, and in fact, it's probably going to sound terrible, so I want to apologize to everybody. I don't have my headphones on. I must have gotten this so excited, I forgot to change the mic, so, um, but that being said, Roger, I'll help you with your podcast. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yeah, so. Thanks very much. I'll see you again. You're very welcome. Thank you so much, and I um, look forward to having you back on. Take care. Okay. Yeah, bye for now. Bye.